morning. <laughs> How are you, Stark? I'm doing great. That's one of my favorite greetings to text. I like it. It's good. It's a good one. Simple, straightforward. How are you doing, everyone listening to Game of Bones? Welcome back. It's been a while since I feel like you and me have done an episode with chapters. And this is a we morning recording. It's the morning time. Yeah, everything is perfect. Yeah, thanks to everyone for joining us. This is our second episode of 2K18. We are going to be discussing Brienne 6 and Cersei 7 from Feast for Crows that are originally written beside each other in A Feast for Crows, George R. R. Martin's book from Song of Ice and Fire. And Never in heard our it. combined reading order, they're also next to each other. And remember when we were uh, coming off of the last chapter episode, we were like, which chapters, which two are we going into next? And it turned out that it was this pairing. I don't know which one I'm more excited to talk about if it's Brienne or Cersei. And you were texting me halfway through the Cersei chapter and were saying how good it was. And I said, just wait until the very end. Oh, yeah. I could change my mind about what it meant uh, as we start talking about it. Who knows? Both of these chapters were about the same length. Which of the two did you have the most fun reading? I really, really loved this Brienne chapter just because there is a lot of interesting theorizing and conversations we can have with the gravedigger theory comes out in this chapter and i felt like my highlighter was running out of ink because we have so many cool passages between brianne's conversation with elder brother but then we also get into some really interesting issues with cersei in her chapter and it's this broad theme that we've been talking about throughout all of a feast for crows and this entire reading order um just about her as a leader and her descent into madness but we really get a strong showing of that. I feel like by the end of this chapter, she essentially copies exactly what Robert would do to her. So I thought that was interesting as well. There's this area in Ocarina of Time in this Legend of Zelda game where you have to have a certain item so you can walk, you can follow this ghost in a certain path. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you get lost in the desert and have to go back. And I felt like that's what they were doing here. He was like, it's right there. Can't we just walk right there? And he's like, Faith faith we have Mm -hmm. to walk the path of faith and it was just so interesting uh what it was spelling did you look further into it like for more imagery or were you seeing it just for what it was like that moment that river crossing well i really liked what brianne thought to herself she thinks the path of faith was a crooked one Mm. she couldn't help but note um and i just interesting that nobody else seemed to know the way or know the rhyme or reason behind it aside from Septon Maribald, who seemed to be pretty confident in their sidestepping through seaweed and water and mud, which I thought was interesting. And I don't know if it was a larger metaphor, if you picked up on stuff like that, or if about faith in general, or if it's just them wandering through marshlands. (laughs) I don't don't know know if, if it was specific or if it's just kind of everything all at once as it all is. Mm hmm. You know, where it's like we could look at it as as a limited scope and say, this is a window and this is what this window means. And therefore, this could be analogous to some other meeting. But at the same time, it's like maybe Brienne and Podrick and Septon Maribald are just walking across the river. Right. And maybe the dog listening. Maybe it's just him listening. I think that George R. R. Martin quite often talks about religion and faith in these very overarching and sweeping ways. And I just feel like this was another addition to that or just another check mark on this idea that faith 
in this sense, in this like metaphor that I feel like, as Brienne points out, and as Septon Maribald kind of, there's a point where they're asking, are you sure that that's where we want to go? This doesn't make sense at all. And Septon Maribald's like, believe, persist and follow. We'll figure it out. We'll find it together. And so I just feel like these overarching ideas of what faith is and what religion means and how it frames the worldview of a lot of these different characters, especially as we get to the end of A Feast for Crows um, with a faith militant and things like that. I think it just kind of continues to play into, and I don't know, I think that it's up for interpretation what you think he's trying to say about religion, um, but I just feel like this is another piece to that conversation. I feel that there's at least a purpose to it. Kind of like there's a purpose to this quiet aisle where it's not easily accessible yet. Those who do access it for a time benefit great from the land. And I think at some point end up having to pay conversely for their level of access. For example, when something goes wrong, there's not the kind of healing available that they might need to feasibly survive. And I think that that translates over somewhat to the people of salt pans. I think that we saw they were untouched by the war, but for the most part, but when it did come, it came very hard, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's important to, to keep a lot of those points in mind. And I think that just the humility as we get further in the story of, of who's delivering these messages and, and who, who it's okay to believe, I think begins to clear through the fog. And you, you see Brianne following a dog, a donkey and a holy man. And it's a total normal thing <laughs> after everything that's happened so far heading to salt pans and looking for the hound doesn't seem that far off from the norm well he doesn't seem that far off either right dot 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 dot, dot. <laughs> so now that you've seen the show's adaptation and kind of how they amalgamated this situation what do you think after you know reading the original again for the podcast well i mean and everyone's probably going to say this nothing beats the original. And I feel like there's so many very interesting little hints and tidbits that we get out of this chapter with the gravedigger theory and the idea that the hound is actually alive and that he's here. And I feel like the show did a pretty good job doing nodding to that a little bit, especially, you know, we had that scene in this last season as the hound is digging that grave. I felt like it was kind of a nod to to this scene here, even though he had already been reintroduced at that point. Right. But um, I mean, nothing is going to beat the original, of course. Um, the, the mystery unravels in such a different way. You know what I mean? I love seeing it for a second or third time, having another look at the hints and seeing how the grave digger responded to Dog as he approached. Yeah. Just the, he dropped uh-huh. his spade and decided to pet him and uh, paying specific attention to the way the elder brother spoke about the hound and what happened to him at Salt Pans and how he buried him. And now that we've got a little bit more Lord of Light style stuff shuffling around in the Hound universe in my head, I'm like, what does this all mean? I know. I know. And what what does he have in store for what does the Lord of Light have in store for somebody like the Hound? Yeah. As he's here on the quiet aisle surrounded by these people of faith, you know, just down the river from where Robert and Rhaegar fought. And the rubies were spilled. And Brienne's here too. And Podrick's here too. And his horse is there. Whelped in hell. This huge black stallion Mm -hmm. who did not fall. So they didn't change the horse, right? 
even though it was whelped and right. held, they're, they're using it for what it is. So it, it leads me to believe that the hound made his decision sort of on his own. Like it wasn't a, a I'll heal you if you change, possibly. I think that maybe this is the kind of person that would have considered the hound an outlaw and maybe left him or unless he saw him do some kind of deed or maybe heard some kind of retribution. I'd be really interested to find out, hopefully in Winds of Winter, what exactly went down with these guys. Mm-hmm. Well, there there is a moment where um, Elder Brother kind of talks about how he, let me find it exactly, because he takes pity on him, he says, and he really starts to feel for him. And he's telling Brienne that this is when he buried him or, well, he saw him die. Right. But um, he mentions that he he kind of changed his view of, of who this guy was. And I wonder if he was alluding to whatever happened um, that we don't know about or, or aren't being told about quite yet that that made him see somebody who supposedly is wreaking havoc through the salt pans. What what changed? But I guess a question that I had, and I don't think that there's a real answer to this, and maybe it didn't matter at all, but if he didn't bury the hound, did he bury somebody else? And if that's somebody that's worth noting or worth thinking about, or if he's just literally talking about having buried him but never actually going through it with it, you know what I mean? I can read I the snippet. He sounds very invested in Sandler Clegane. Did you notice that when you were right. reading? And he was like, I know a little of this man. You're like, okay, I guess we're going to talk about the hound. We were just mentioning him, but. Mm-hmm. All right. He says, I know a little of this man, Sandor Clegane. He was Prince Joffrey's sworn shield for many a year. And even here, we would hear tell of his deeds, both good and ill. If even half of what we heard was true, this was a bitter, tormented soul, a sinner who mocked both gods and men. He served but found no pride in service. He fought but took no joy in victory. He drank to drown his pain in a sea of wine. He did not love, nor was he loved himself. It was hate that drove him. Though he committed many sins, he never sought forgiveness. Where other men dream of love or wealth or glory, this man, Sandor Clegane, dreamed of slaying his own brother. A sin so terrible it makes me shudder just to speak of it. Yet that was the bread that nourished him, the fuel that kept his fires burning. Ignoble as it was, the hope of seeing his brother's blood upon his blade was all the sad and angry creature lived for. And even that was taken from him when the prince Oberyn of Dorne stabbed Sir Gregor with the poisoned spear. Such a good passage. The bread that nourishes him is this fuel to to take down his brother. So clearly they talked for a while, you know? Well, yeah. And that's one of the big proponents of this idea that the Hound is still here. Because why would he be so intimately aware of him or know him as well as he seems to you know when Mm -hmm. you really like someone and you always bring them up in conversation yeah and you can't stop talking about them yeah i feel like that that's kind of what this is like somebody that he has a relationship with slash who's right outside yeah yeah, yeah, who's who's right there and so i think that's another big point of this idea that this is where the hound is and i don't know if if, (laughs) i mean i think that this is something we all kind of take as canon at this point especially if we're going to play the show into this at all a little bit here which i think it's hard uh, not we to. can in this instance it's hard not to but i think that we can in, in the instance of he's back and plays a pretty pivotal role and as we're talking about this idea of the lord of light and kind of what he has in store for the hound right but it's done in brian's chapter right i think it's pretty damn cool it doesn't feel isolated like it's its own track and that's it feels like it's involved with someone like brian i don't know i think that i don't know if it really makes a lot of sense but it just seems warmer to me if it's brianne and podrick Mm -hmm. oh for sure especially as somebody like brianne who's been hunting him and trying to find him and she mentioned in the beginning 
they ask what she's doing here. And they want to, she's like, I'm, I'm trying to look to find the hound. And he's like, to what end? <laughs> and she touches her oath keeper and she's like, his. Oh, wow. So it's, it's perfect for her to be kind of here as this is all being unraveled. She's looking for, for Sansa or Arya or whoever the heck she ends up looking for. That was something, huh? When the elder brother was like, by the way, it's not Sansa who he's with. It, it sort of felt like a standard a Feast for Crows Brienne chapter with meandering darkness geographical coverage there in the beginning i love that those moments you know the sort of swampy muck and the story that we were hearing from george r martin just from the nature that we were surrounded by you know Mm -hmm. like it, it was a lot of fun but when he started speaking specifically about Arya stark i was like oh you know now things are changing a little bit and i felt like I don't know, the stakes were a little bit higher, and I, I, I'm i curious as to the levels of trust folks had reading this chapter for the first time for these guys, because it really does feel like when Septim Maribald starts hanging out with Brother Norbert that they're a kind of boys club that don't have, they're not used to divulging secrets to their travelers, and they're very okay with that. Right. You know, they've been at this for a while. I don't remember what I thought my first read through because you know you're reading so quickly to get to the end that I didn't really have time to think about it I think it's probably the reality Um, but it kind of I feel like it reorients you in this overarching idea of what Brienne is actually trying to accomplish and you feel like you're a touch closer to her finding who she's looking for um, as they're talking about not Sansa but that's possibly Arya they both could be alive and Brienne isn't sure but Arya might not be alive because of everything that happened with the salt pans and maybe she was among the children that were slain there. And so I feel like Brienne learning all this information about Arya and Sansa and the Hound, I mean, this is this is a huge dent in what she's looking for and what she's trying to accomplish. And this is a big she's got to reorient kind of what her what her goals are gonna be, um, knowing what she now knows that Sansa isn't going to be here and Arya might not be alive and the Hound, according to this, is is gone. So what does she do next, you know? Mm. I guess it depends on how important all of this is. The Quiet Isle, Salt Pans, the Bay of Crabs, this northeastern area, northeast of, of Harrenhal. It's kind of a nexus, but just so enough where, like I said earlier, they were relatively untouched by chaos people like the brave companions until now there's brian podrick heil hunt <laughs> heil hunt mysterious religious folk and the hound and dog and stranger i suppose man it's so hard to like really gauge it's just because i mean brian leaves sure and we can assume that the hound stays but like mm-hmm. i guess knowing how many people are here right now you know and the kind of stuff that they're talking about i'm curious as to what sort of future that they all have and why they're here right now and like why it's in this sort of like loading this sort of pregame lobby area. Right. You know, (laughs) everybody is milling about. (laughs) It's kind of like a pause and they've got this incredible hermit's hole that is like bag end from Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. So I thought a little Hobbit shout out from George was pretty fun. Seems just like a pleasant little place. Uh, Amongst uh, Rhaegar's rubies as well. Don't forget another thing to make it feel more. (sighs) 
mysterious. Just more, yeah. So is Rhaegar there, just hanging out? I mean, <laughs> is that I don't the know. theory you you buy into? <laughs> no, that's not a theory I buy into. But if you're listening to the podcast and you have a theory in general about this area of Westeros and the people that inhabit it, and why we're reading it in this way and why it's so mysterious and foggy. It does. Maybe tell it us. Explicit, it does feel foggy. Is it explicitly described that way? Did I miss that? I think so. But you know it's foggy. I know. It's just like one of those things where it's like, yeah, that's exactly how I was picturing mm-hmm. it too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a little dismal. Yeah, a little cold. Salt pans. You can. I'm looking back to see. You can just see the lights, but there are no lights. And we gained so much closer to really resolving what's happening here. And it just seems like Sandor Clegane is at the center of both of these stories. Both, and you got to wonder how how he is meant to directly impact the, the life of these Stark women when mm-hmm. they're so young, you know, and mm-hmm. why him? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we but I guess know. the answers are there with the archetypes that these people inhabit, you know, but without seeing the the last lights of the runway, it's really hard to call exactly why and which direction we're doing it. Right. So Elder Brother is giving Bran all of this information. And I think, as we've been saying, there's just a lot surrounding him and this place and this conversation that they have and and he leads her down into this cottage where they have this entire conversation um which i wasn't quite sure how that was going to go you know mm-hmm. uh, given brand's track record but it turned out to be helpful and they have this really great heart to heart basically and they both kind of spill their life stories both elder brother and brianne talk about kind of where they came from and how they got here. And then he ends up giving her advice that she isn't going to take about what she should do next. But I just felt like they had this really cool, and I love this. So many to feels too, right? Yes. The Brienne thing, I was like, George is hitting every major plot point Brienne has ever had. I loved it. Starting back from the suitors when she was uh, a kid. Uh-huh. It was fascinating. Going it was to Renly. And, yeah. yeah. And seeing the different points. And how it affected her and feeling like they were sort of ours, you know, like we sort of knew and understood them, even though, you know, we're obviously not this character, but, but she lives within there. us. Yeah, we've been there. We've been we've, through all yeah. of it. Yeah, I really like it when that it stuff like that cool. comes up. I didn't feel the same way about Elder Brother when he was discussing fighting in the Battle of the Trident. It sort of felt like I was watching a cutscene, you know, like I was watching a flashback, whereas Brienne's thought was happening in the moment. And kind of all I felt was like a look on her face, you Mm -hmm. know, maybe like consternation of making a decision based off of that feeling. Right. Like in the moment kind of spilling. But you know that I love a good montage with some dialogue oh, behind yeah. it and i felt like this is exactly what he was doing here as he was talking uh-huh. about um i want to read about it because i thought it, i want to read this because i thought it was really good but he's talking about his time as a knight and all this stuff it's this very long passage but brian kind of asks when he changed and, and kind of when things started to become different for him and he says which is this is interesting he says when i died at the battle of the trident um, I fought for Prince Rhaegar, though he never knew my name. I could not tell you why, save that the lord I served served a lord who served a lord who had decided to support the dragon rather than the stag. He had Ouch. decided elsewise. I might have been on the other side of the river. Um, and since the battle was a bloody thing, the singers would have us believe it was all Rhaegar and Robert struggling in the stream for a woman both of them claimed to love. But I assure you, other men were fighting too, and I was one. I just thought that was perspective. It's really yeah, it's it's really interesting perspective. And and we talk all the time about these people 
just these normal people who become casualties of this war. And this is an insight into that, that he doesn't really understand why he fought for who. It didn't really matter. Um, But he fought and he was there and it wasn't as glorious as just a struggle between Rhaegar and Robert, which we kind of hear about all the time. Honestly, it sounds terrible. It sounds awful. Don't Uh, sign me up. (laughs) I I don't see it as foggy there, though. I see it as sort of juxtaposed with the horror, just really good weather. You know what I mean? Like bright and sunny. And there's just people splashing around and sort of ankle to waist deep, not ankle, probably like knee to waist deep water, just killing each other sluggishly because they can't move fast. Right, with like current. the sunlight Ugh. shining down. Yeah, just breaking through the trees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not yeah, not not what you want to do. But so he dies basically, or whatever. Doesn't really die unless he comes back to life. I don't know. I don't. He dies like the hound died. I think is the point. Right. He's like right. when when I died. Well, sort of around the same time the hound passed right. away. <laughs> By the way, the hound. <laughs> Instead, that I woke here upon the quiet aisle. What if he did die? And he went to an alternate reality. And that's where this is. Instead, I woke here upon the quiet aisle. It's like in Harry Potter when Harry meets Dumbledore at the train station. Yeah. It's literally the same. So he says, we're all born naked. So I suppose it was only fitting that I come into my second life the the same way. And I think it just plays into this idea that coming here to the quiet aisle gives you a, you're reborn and rebirthed into this new way of life. And you have to walk the path of the faith to to get there, to mm-hmm. reach it. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so that's that's kind of what I, I see his the context of that here. And so thinking about the hound, thinking about who Elder Brother was and who he's become and this vow of silence that people here take and and what comes in and out of this place. Um, I thought it was just kind of an interesting personal context from somebody who has been on the outside, you know? Well, we know how it affects Brienne toward the end of the chapter, like we said, after the elder brother shares with her his backstory and how he eventually was silent for 10 years, I think found some kind of clothing and shoes and eventually became someone that was upon the day. Uh, Brienne, does she accept the things that have happened to her? Did, did she always accept them? I don't know. You know, I'm I'm not sure exactly what she's doing here other than just like maybe she just ignored it for so long. Well, I think so. And I think that um, he just strikes a chord with her and he tells her to go home and that this isn't she doesn't need to be kind of caught up in in all of these things that are going on. And she has a home, which he mentions that not everybody has. And I think that that just it makes her cry. And she, she thinks about who she is and who her family wanted her to be and what her parents deserve as a daughter. And she goes through this really sad story about her siblings. And she says, I'm the only child the gods let them keep the freakish one, not fit to be a son or a daughter. And so I think that if we're going to talk about whether Brienne has kind of faced her life or faced who she is or come to terms with kind of any of this, I don't, I don't think so because I think that it's just, a lot you know how does somebody find peace in that when she's been through as much as she's been through so um it was just very sad passage as she kind of spills as we were saying who she is and who she's been and and everything we've kind of seen her go through um including jamie in the tub at heron hall (laughs) with steam rising from his body literally everything you know every 
big moment. And so I just thought it was very poignant that she was not pushed to some sort of confession, but she was just so caught up in where she was. I, that's just kind of how I'm reading into it and then moved by this conversation that she can't help but let it all spill out, you know? Moved by his story, moved by the story he told of Sandor Clegane. I think that Brand of Tarth and Sandor Clegane have more in common than they know. And hearing his story, I think, helps her in a way realize some things about herself and come to terms with some things about herself. And, and maybe like how the Hound has refused to love, refused to let himself become invested. I don't know if it was because of trust. He was burned at an early age. Bran was burned figuratively many times at an early age. And they resisted a lot of those feelings from certain kinds of people for, I think, maybe similar reasons. But either way, I, it, it was pushed away all the same. Mm-hmm. And maybe the same way the Hound was killed and was hopefully reborn here in the books. Maybe Brienne is going through a similar situation at the same place. You know, right. Maybe this long paragraph and her crying and realizing how she feels about Jamie, possibly realizing how she feels about her family for sure, or at least coming to terms with it out loud for the first time in this book. Exactly. And I, I think she even goes through that in a small way when she she kind of pulls herself together and she says she has to she has to keep her promise. And she promised Jamie, she promised Jamie, you know, she's she's gonna do what she set out to do regardless of xyz everything that she's gone through that it kind of gives her this strength to keep pushing forward and that she wants to die trying um which i think is is so in a way she kind of gets this renewed sense of energy in in this what she's been trying to accomplish and so in a small way i guess you can say i'm putting quotes up with my fingers that she's reborn a little bit here through the the fake death of the hound you know, mm-hmm. like he didn't have a chance for retribution as far as the story is concerned, but actually he did, you know, and maybe she can too. Maybe, maybe she doesn't have to feel this way forever, you know? Right. She doesn't have to be sad or hurt or distraught. She doesn't have to feel dark. She can feel good. And I think that's a really neat idea. And I hope that that's the kind of future that Sandor Clegane is embracing at this part of the story moving forward. Cause I think it'd be really interesting to have a George R. R. Martin written Sandor Clegane that sort of accepted the darkness of his past life and goes, you know what I want? That's all great. But, you know, kind of like how Brienne has sworn to uh, protect Sansa Stark for Jamie, you know, like he just maybe swears to have a good life and swears to do right. Right. Which, I mean, this kind of digs into cocaine bowl. But right. we'll go with it anyway. <laughs> I know. I don't know how to reconcile those yeah. two things. They're like, we can't reconcile them. It's like, let's just see how it plays out. <laughs> oh, well. It's really fascinating, though. You know, and we didn't get to have that that same play of characters in the show. But it's so cool to see it because, like, they fight, you know? So you see how that was adapted. And so while they do sort of dance together in both amalgamations of the story... You know what I mean? It's like in different ways. And mm-hmm. it's it's fascinating. I really, really thought that this was uh, a beautiful way to end the chapter. And it was quite emotional when I read it. I I didn't remember how intense it was. And yeah. uh, 
it was intense. Like when I got to the moment where it says Jamie crying sapphires, there was just a cutaway in that montage where I was hearing Jamie crying sapphires and yeah. thinking about how that affected Brianna, like how she knew deep down, like what that must mean for Jamie to cry that out deep down when he was going through what he did. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a good book, man. <laughs> it's really good. And for those yeah. of you who are not reading along um you should definitely check out the last paragraph two paragraphs of this chapter i think it's a little bit too long for us to read or maybe we could but it's just yeah very beautifully written in a great summary it's just i love brianne so much you know Mm -hmm. that's all i could feel yeah so this is a great chapter and Clegane Bowl 2019, 2K19. <laughs> That's all I have to say. <laughs> I hope that Brianne's at least there when it, when it goes down. <laughs> also, Jamie. Also, Kyburn, honestly. Honestly. There's a transition to this turkey yeah, chapter. There's a, good, there's a good transition. RX Bar is a whole food protein bar made with a few simple, clean ingredients, which all serve a purpose. Egg whites for protein, dates to bind, and nuts for texture. And in the interest of full transparency, all of the core ingredients are labeled right on the front of the package. No BS. They're perfect for breakfast on the go, a snack at the office. To throw in your bag for a bike ride, a hike, traveling, anything. Better yet, beyond being a go-to snack that checks off a number of nutritional boxes, RX bars actually taste delicious. With 11 different flavor varieties, all of which are gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, and free of any added sugar, artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or fillers, you can actually taste the cacao, the real fruit, the spices, like sea salt. So whether you like sweet or savory, chocolate or fruit flavors, there's an RX bar for you. These are the tastiest protein bars I've eaten, and I'm used to seeing less protein per bar with a lot more sugar in other products that I've tried, so I was very surprised and super happy when these came in. When I'm eating something like a protein bar and they've added sugar to make it tastier for me, it's just something I'm not interested in. So seeing egg whites and nuts as a base for nutrition and protein, not needing to throw in a bunch of extra sugar, these are perfect for me and they tasted great. For 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com slash owns and enter promo code owns at checkout. That's rxbar.com slash owns, promo code O-W-N-S for 25% off your first order. Kyvern in this chapter, though. Mm. When Hannah and I were texting earlier, um, I wasn't sure what she was talking about when she was like, just wait till you get to the end. I definitely wasn't expecting it to be a kind of sex scene. That's not normally the kind of thing she sets me up for. <laughs> but either way, what I texted you in response was... A quote that Kyburn said. <laughs> just one of my favorite parts of the chapter. He was a half promising Cersei, um, Robert Strong, you know, teasing it up. Right. And she's already been making weird requests to the armorers. And she's mad about it because she's embarrassed because she's been told by this, by the blacksmith, that it's like, there's no guy who can move plate this heavy. There's no way. And so mm-hmm. she's afraid. She's like, you better not be making a jest, Kyburn. I'll have to send you to you. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, they will sing of him. I swear it. It goes, Lord Kyburn's eyes crinkled with amusement. <laughs> I just feel like Anton Lesser, who plays Kyburn on the show, does such. He's one of those people who, in my mind, is perfectly Kyburn. Like, I can see his eyes just kind of like crinkling a little he bit knows. and the way he kind of shuffles along i just feel like he's such a good embodiment of who kyburn is and so reading moments like that and thinking about him and i mean 
honestly, it's awful. All these all oh, the man. allusions to what Kyburn is doing oh, in man. this chapter. But I can just kind of see him with like excitedly twiddling his fingers. <sighs> kind of like about it to get... just a little because <laughs> well, he's it's so like confident. Like gruesomely fascinated with this guy who's just, I mean, Cersei. Oh God, Cersei in this chapter, dude. <laughs> like, Cersei, long pause. It's like, this chapter was so cool. What part do we get into? Um, she gives him. Oh, so should we talk about? She gives him a lot of people in this chapter. We hear about the yeah, puppeteers that she was reasons. mad about. Yeah, she gives um, Lady Stokeworth down to Kyburn. I mean, it's just like yeah. he's having a heyday in this Felice. chapter. I know Oof. it's actually really sad, but she just. Oof. This image that I have of Kyburn kind of shuffling around and doing all this disturbing things in his little dungeons is an amusing one, uh, regardless of what the consequences are, you know. And this idea of who who's going to come out of this, um, this guy who's going to be saying about um, is another Clegane Bowl reference, so... Please get hype. Packing them up in here, but it's it's funny, you know. I realized when I was reading this chapter that they're all just people, and they're not very old. Some of them, well, yeah, Loris, you know, he's being gallant, but he's you know a teenager. He's standing there. He's just a kid, and they're all just people. I think it really was brought forth to my attention when. Cersei was looking around at everyone at the beginning of the chapter. There's an emergency meeting. Marjorie gets everyone out of bed. My enemies are everywhere, and my friends are useless. I feel like that's the realest <laughs> thing she's ever said. If you see it that way, Cersei, yeah, chances well, you are. you think about in this chapter who her friends are and the people who are saying yes to her wild political theories about what is or isn't happening. and Crazy. What everyone is doing, <laughs> what Stannis might be doing, and what the Greyjoys might be doing. She has oh, these God. crazy ideas about what is or isn't happening, and peop- they're all just kind of like, Pycelle... She kind of makes this thing this i can't remember exactly the context and you can help maybe remember or it's not important but she's talking about stannis or someone or the Greyjoys, and pycelle corrects her basically saying that what you think about their motivations is completely wrong yeah and she thinks to herself she's like how could such a learned man be so stupid you know she's yeah. just like this but also guy. at the same point she was like Oh, he's useless now anyway. He's really used up all of his fire, I think. I don't think I have use for him anymore. So she's sort of like half admitting to herself that it's all bullshit. But eh, that's okay. I don't want to believe him. So he's yeah. dumb. Yeah, that was really funny. Oh, God, that Stannis stuff, you know, and the Greyjoy. He's like, this is what Stannis will do for a strategy. This is the only way. And everyone's just like, I don't know about yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, but that's really how I want it to be, though, because I really don't want to help Highgarden. Because if we do, then we could be helping Stannis, and we all know how bad that would be. You guys know that he's got a red priestess for a friend, right? And they're like, yeah, but... (laughs) (laughs) It's really, It was really funny, honestly. And then we get Loras, who kind of comes to the rescue, and he said he'll take... He'll take... He's like, the castle will be yours within a fortnight if I have to tear it down with my bare hands. Honestly, the feels... Just my note says, Sort Sir Loris is a fucking G. <laughs> this is what George R. R. Martin wrote. Loris is the coolest dude there is right now. He's the coolest character. Sir Loris ignored her plea. It will take half a year or more to starve Dragonstone into submission, as Lord Paxter means to do. Give me the command, Your Grace. The castle will be yours within a fortnight if I have to tear it down with my bare hands. 
get it, Loris. Come on, Hannah. Like, but what come is Loris on. trying to accomplish here? I think was a big question, takeaway question I have. He wants Highgarden to be helped by the realm because mm-hmm. they're getting pummeled. Right? There's there's some angry Greyjoys heading up the Mander, and they're vicious. You guys remember that last chapter we had with Vic, mm-hmm. Lord Sari. The serving people that used to live there that were no longer wearing clothes, not to mention all the people that were viciously murdered in the name of Euron's smiling eye. I mean, honestly, he's like, all right, I will I will sail to Dragonstone. I will speed up that siege by a year and a half personally so we can get those ships to Highgarden. Right. He's got to save his people. Yeah. After this conversation, she's, she thinks to herself, no one had given Cersei such a lovely gift since Sansa Stark had run to her to divulge Lord uh. Eddard's plans. <laughs> God, like, she's so on form in this chapter. <laughs> oh man, that was so good. I know we're a little bit all over the place, but I just found that Cersei blip where she was talking about Stannis. It goes, he gains another foothold and plunder that as well. Stannis needs gold to pay his sell swords. By raiding in the West, he hopes he can distract us from Dragonstone and the Storm's End. And Lord Merryweather's like, mm-hmm, <laughs> Stannis is more cunning than we knew. <laughs> Your grace is clever to have seen through his play. You can see her, her <laughs> yes-men really big time mm-hmm. trying to appease her with her stupid ideas. And she's playing it fast and loose right now with Marjorie. Marjorie and Loras, this is the middle of the night. It's very serious. They're like, we have real Ironborn, real Ironborn heading up the Mander right now. And she's trying to, you know, strategize around it with like, oh, but we only have certain amounts of people that we can spare. And don't you guys have fishing boats and stuff? You know, like this is supposed to be her family, Mm -hmm. essentially. You know what I mean? And she's making excuses about like protecting them. Yeah, there's no way. There's no way she's going to spare lift a finger. She's thrilled about this idea that like Loris might not make it or that their family might get. Like, she just doesn't care. All right. And then she's also, remember the quote where it's like, okay, so he's already going to Dragonstone. Pycelle's already, you know, had a heart to heart with her after Marjorie left. And he was like, I don't know about this. Yeah. She starts thinking about Osney Kettleblack. Literally, she's <laughs> not giving up on Osney. She goes, and if he should come home on his shield covered in blood and glory, Sir Osney will be there to console his grieving sister. The laugh could not be contained any longer. It burst from Cersei's lips and echoed down the hall. <laughs> Your grace, Grandmaster Pycelle blinked, his mouth sagging open. Why Why would you laugh? <laughs> why? She had to say. Elsewise, I might weep. My heart is bursting with love for our Sir Loris and his valor. That scene is amazing. I also like just her right before bursting that, and laughter. Right before that, she's kind of riling herself up. She thinks about how he made John along the way. And she says, she thinks to herself, wouldn't that be sad? The queen mused, drowning is ordinary. Soloris lusts for glory as real men lust for women. The least the gods can do is grant him a death worthy of a song. So she's Ugh. just kind of like going through all of these things in her mind. And Pycelle with his mouth sagging open. Why yeah. are you laughing? honestly the osney thing after all that yeah (laughs) she's like still strategizing how to get marjorie to sleep with someone else while she also pretty much got rid of loris which is something that you would think would be a huge deal to her she's already on the osney thing again she's like oh by the way and there's osney that's really funny i did not it's so funny i did not think about that Meanwhile, Kyburn's just dancing through all of this. He's riding high. You know? He's getting everything he wants. And Cersei is happily handing over 
people to do whatever the heck he's doing down there, which I don't want the details of. Oh, when she threatened Taina, she's like, I'd be very sad if you ever betrayed my trust, China. I would have no choice but to give you to Lord Kyburn, and I know that I should weep. It's like, oh, jeez. It's like her go-to Nothing thing. Nothing gets me and, in the mood more than that. Well, yeah. <laughs> Cersei really gives her a lot of information, and they're kind of chatting, which, you know, I, I was kind of thinking about she she needs someone to confide in, I guess, um, with with everything that's going on. But they're they're starting to have this conversation. Felice comes barreling in with this news about Braun, um, <laughs> which <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, it was there. It was her husband's one job to uh, get rid of Braun, and he he's do he does it in this way that. Cersei's like, why did you try to get rid of him this way? It's so bad that she just like, let's just kill her, honestly. Well, she knows too much. And so she just, she's like, Kyber will take care of you, basically. And it's like, that's awful. I just felt so bad for this poor woman who just lost her husband. And she knows that Cersei sent them to kill Bronn. And so who knows who she's going to tell. And in her distress, Cersei's like... Don't worry about it. Carburn will take care of you. This was dark. Felice Stokeworth arrives. We've had a pretty interesting chapter so far. News of the Greyjoys. Cersei is pleased with herself for working late. She's thinking lots of Robert as she's getting progressively more drunk. She progressively thinks, hmm, I'm doing this job better than he would. He would have never gotten out of bed, let alone met with members of his small council to handle stately duties. This is perfect. Ah, and the Stokeworth. Oh, shit. This was my plan. I better take care of this. She's she's really <laughs> proud of herself. Oh, man. She thinks again as she pours herself another cup of wine. Slightly different quote, but the same thought as the beginning of the chapter. I am surrounded by enemies and imbeciles. I just felt like this chapter more so than a lot of Cersei chapters that we've had recently. She was just so much extra of herself, you know, that this was just kind of this... Especially as we as we get into the stuff with Robert and and what ends up happening be- between her um, and Talina at the end, she just was on another level in this chapter, right? Did you kind of get that? I oh, definitely. I felt bad for her for one small moment um, as she is kind of in the middle of this pillow talk. She's thinking of Robert and how he would rape her all the time basically and how she used to pretend he was Rhaegar and she she thinks to herself yeah, that was dark she thinks to herself the wrong man came back from the trident and I just kind of had yeah. this moment how thinking about how Rhaegar runs off with Lyanna who Robert wanted to be with and the two of them were just kind of left with each other um in this super toxic relationship and I had this moment of sadness and, and I, I I think that Cersei was going to be Cersei no matter who she was with and kind of no matter what but it just kind of was this like twinkle of I kind of feel bad for both of them like neither of them kind of had this life they desired and then they both drank too much and messed each other up you know right how the, her marriage was a melee that moment was dark but I felt like that sort of they felt closer together when she was speaking that way than she, ever you mm-hmm. know when she was warmed by that thought when she reflected that he didn't lie about it. 
talking about that cracked tooth. Oh, yeah, exactly. The rest had all been lies, though. He did remember what he did to her at night. She was convinced of that. She could see it in his eyes. He only pretended to forget it. It was easier to do that than to face his shame. Deep down, Robert Baratheon was a coward. Such a bad, like, it's just not a good guy, you know? And so she she's going through all of this, and then she deals with everything with Lady Stokeworth, and then she does the exact same thing. And it's like... She's going to bed thinking about how she's a better king than Robert and how she's kind of all high and mighty. And she does 100% what Robert used to do to her after kind of going through everything in her head. And and she's <laughs> the details of these last couple of paragraphs, I feel like, get pretty intense. And oh, yeah, as <laughs> she well, that moment when she's thinking about how she would lick Robert's sons off her face and fingers, oh. eating his heirs. And yeah. she goes through everything with Talina as she's kind of thinking about basically how great she is and how amazing she is. And then the end of the chapter, it ends with, it would be morning soon and all of this would be forgotten. It had never happened. What shamed him in the light of day gave him pleasure in the darkness. That is just like next level. It had never happened. She just, this is her thought process as she turns throughout this entire chapter is just, she's just... There's real, real, real darkness inside of her. And this just it just came out in a big way, I felt like, with with this scene. And maybe it doesn't count if she doesn't want it to. <laughs> yeah, that, that's how it works. That's not how it works. <laughs> not at all. It's awful. <laughs> it's really awful. And, you know, you feel bad for her for a moment, a little bit, thinking about everything she went through with Robert and how he would use her and rape her as he did. And then she kind of turns around and... Um, it's, it's a sticky situation and, and that's the only way she knows how to brain power, I feel like almost. And she kind of turns around and does the same exact thing. And it's just, it's, it's awful. Plus on top of this happening, sorry, on top of all this happening, Kyburn is downstairs in the yeah. basement. <laughs> just waiting. You know, like it's just this, it's just a lot. I was going to say the way that she looks at Lady Merriweather. And uh, who's a beautiful woman who's slightly naked in her bed. This is uh, after the Felice stuff, after she's back. She looks at her and she says what she thinks. Robert would have loved you for an hour. And then there's some more descriptors. And then it goes back to her quote. It says, but once he spent himself inside you, he would have been hard pressed to recall your name. (sighs) Ouch. It's just darkness. of. There's a disconnect there between her and other people. Definitely. And uh, it's different from the kind of darkness that we experienced in the chapter before. So I thought it was very cool to see these two chapters pressed against each other. Obviously, how George meant it, we try to do it on our own uh, throughout the reading order. But sometimes, you know, it's just like perfect. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. It really was, though, perfect. You know what I mean? The different kinds of things that they're dealing with and how we've got these masculine and feminine issues that are popping up within these masculine and feminine characters in really progressively complex ways. And it happens um, in sort of a non-traditional, non-expected way, but yet sort of always works out the same Mm -hmm. in the end. Well, and you see these arcs of redemption coming from somebody like the Hound. We're kind of starting to sniff out some of this redemption that he's may or may not be going through and, and what he's ha- what's happening to him right now in the quiet isle versus someone like cersei who there's almost no hope for any redeeming quality or any redeeming thought you know that she's having so i don't think that our conversation about this stuff is over and i know that we'll get 
I know that we have more Brienne and more Cersei to adventure with through A Feast with Dragons, but I know that we both have to leave right now. So do we just go right to Owns and then promise everyone listening that will... To be continued. I don't know. Um, how do you pick an Own from this chapter? I, I think if we're going to go... Let's go Cersei chapter first because we're already talking about it. I just have an easy answer for you. Okay. And I'm wondering if you... <laughs> went through the same thing that I did, but when I was reading about Braun and all his plans mm-hmm. and Castle Stokeworth mm-hmm. and his friends and the stuff that they pulled off, I was just grinning the whole time. I was just like, ha ha. I love Braun. He made it, you know? He made it and I hope that we see him again. Oh man. But I I I get it if we don't. But I just thought when Felice, bless her heart, honestly, and 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 rip. If if if, if what's gonna if what I think's gonna happen to her does happen to her. Yeah. Man, that's the worst. But she was incredulous. She was like, they called him Lord Stokeworth. <laughs> <laughs> you can just see Braun, <laughs> just like yeah, in his so, little way. Braun. That's a good one. I'm going to give my own to a moment we already talked about, but I just like it too much to not talk about it is Pycelle blinking, wondering why Cersei is laughing about oh, yeah. the entire situation. Just too good. And for the Brienne chapter, wait, honorable mention to Cersei when she got back from the... Uh, Meeting with Kyburn, Lady Meriwether is like, hi, how are you? And she's like, it's the hour of the owl. <laughs> like, come on. I guess that's funny. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know what I mean? That's mm-hmm. just like, come on. Like, how ridiculous are you? I'm going to start saying that. Also, quick, unofficial shout out to Cersei for <laughs> saying to Feliz. She was like, what do I do now? And she was like, well, I think widows usually hit up the silent sisters. So That's perfect because that's what... My own for Brienne is. Oh. What a great transition. We didn't get to talk about this, but as they're arriving, um, Podrick says, the Silent Sisters never speak. I heard they don't have tongues. And it says, Septon Maribald smiled. Mothers have been cowing their daughters with that tale since I was your age. There was no truth to it then as there is none now. A vow of silence is an act of contrition, a sacrifice by which we prove our devotion to the seven above. For a mute to take a vow of silence would be akin to a legless man giving up the dance. And I just thought that that was such a first of all, it's like a cool dispelling of that rumor. And second of all, it's a really interesting idea and as you think about like faith and religion and all this kind of stuff, um, this is not this is a heavy own. It's not a funny one. Um but I like it though. I see what you're saying. You know what I mean? Like it just Yeah. To, the silent sisters to have their tongues cut out, that would mean nothing their sacrifice would mean nothing. And so it just kind of adds this weight to kind of what they have to do to follow this faith that they um adhere to. And I thought that that was really cool. So own own to that. I love that. It it seems like an idea that Podrick has sort of built into his character, thankfully, this struggle, and then you get the reward. But I feel like that's really what Septim Maribald was saying there. It was mm-hmm. like, even if we get the outcome, if the outcome wasn't made through struggle, then the point wasn't done. Right. The struggle was the point. Right. Exactly. So, so I like very that. Very cool. I like your own. Thanks. <laughs> that was so fun. Okay. Uh, such a good one. What now? I have to give my own to George R. R. Martin for having so much fun with Dog this chapter. Dog going up to the grave digger. Going up to the grave digger. And also when he was, I, I got this really strong surge of warmth when he was, he understood the stakes and he was like not misbehaving. Because I, I know how, I know how that is that when the when you catch that moment of sort of flow state with your dog, 
And uh, I thought it was really cool when they were crossing the pass of the faith. Mm-hmm. Plus, Drake's at the vet right now, and I'm like missing him. So I'm like, dog. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh, fair. <laughs> um, I just got tears in my eyes. So sad. Oh, <laughs> do you really? So, yes, I'm so mad. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to go see Strike Suit. I know. I'm literally going right after this. In like All a right. half hour. Okay. <laughs> All right. That's sweet. Okay. Those are our owns. <laughs> <laughs> a wide range of them. Um. <laughs> we just made a small cut because I got a little emotional about my animal at the end. And now it's time to read everybody else's own. So I guess I'll read them. <laughs> yeah, let's read them. <laughs> well, I was going to jump into it. I was going to give the how you can send it to owns, but that's for after. Right. We'll tell you right after this. Okay. So first up on Twitter, we have from at Plum Sir, Sir Mayor Plum, who says, own to elder brother for his talks. Brianne let all of our feelings out. And that's how I like to imagine he got all this info from Sandor. Oh, that's sweet. I like that, too. Own to Kyburn mm-hmm. for having another sort of champion in mind, in quotes, for the new Kingsguard member. Hashtag Kyburn's Laboratory. And from at Beauty Brienne, Brienne of Tarth on Twitter, the maid of Twitter. Own to the elder brother for listening when it was most needed. And own to George himself for coining the phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Mirish Swamp. This. You have to read it. That's part of what Cersei was doing at the end of the chapter and killing a good part of my spirit. (laughs) Same. And then we have at Heathen King who says, Brienne owned to that kindly fellow bigger than Brienne digging a grave. Scratch that dog behind the ear. And owned to Cersei Sots closing the chapter about licking the sweet sticky princes from her fingers, eating his heirs. Chilling. Chilling. Very true. That's it. Also, shout out to Heathen King for all the shout outs he got in our last episode. <laughs> Might as well do it again. <laughs> <laughs> just, let's just keep the tradition alive. It's been a lot of fun um, the past couple of weeks with all of the news that came out and that led into our episode recording with Kim about the final season airing in 2K19 and refreshing a look at some of those directors, mm-hmm. obviously. The Kit Harrington stuff. Harrington stuff. And then we were uh, in Boston at Aresia and I got to do a panel about season seven, which was fun yeah. to kind of revisit some of that. So that was a lot been of fun. fun last couple of weeks. It has been. And thank you from the bottom of our hearts to everyone listening along to the podcast, following along with us and sending in your owns. You can send in your own owns and you can follow along and, and do all that fun stuff by finding us on Twitter. We're at Game of Owns or you can find us on Facebook. Uh by searching for Game of Owns. And if Game of Owns isn't enough for you, you can check out our series, Rewatch the Throne, on Stitcher. We're about to get to, or we're getting to, the episode. The Red Wedding. I know we've been setting it up for a few weeks now, but the new year has crossed, and it's officially time. We have to record that episode this week, so sadness will set in. Yeah, I'm really looking fun. forward to talking about it. That's at rewatchthethrone.com. So if you want to follow along with us on the chapters, and if you want to read along with us for our next episode, you can find our entire reading order over at afeastwithdragons.com. And next time we're going to be reading Melisandre and Samwell 4. Ah. So I'm very excited about that Melisandre chapter. Well, Hannah, this was fun. Talk to you next time, yeah? Yeah. (laughs) See you next time.